Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. On October 24th of this year, President Trump signed a historic opioid package into law. It's known as H.R. 6, and this is the first of a two-part series where we'll unpack H.R. 6 to break down what is and isn't in this comprehensive bill and the impact that it'll have on the opioid epidemic. Joining me with their analysis on H.R. 6 today is Jay Rue, the Chief of Staff and Vice President of Federal and National Initiatives for the Addiction Policy Forum, and Braden Kelly, the Director of Federal Affairs for the Addiction Policy Forum in Washington, D.C., Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, Greg. Really great to be with you this afternoon. Thanks for having us. All right. So let's begin. We can't talk on all 41 initiatives that are included in this bill. So we're going to cover nine sections in the next two episodes here. And what I'd like to begin is uh, I'd like to begin with treatment and capacity uh, expansion. So that includes recovery center and family-focused residential treatment. So Let's start us off with kind of what do we need to know, guys, about that? So we all know that expanding treatment capacity is extremely important. You know, SAMHSA tells us that of the 20-plus million Americans who suffer from substance use disorders, just about, just about 10% of them will receive treatment. You know, this legislation recognizes that problem and will establish model comprehensive treatment recovery centers. These centers will provide the full spectrum of evidence-based treatment services, including intake and evaluations and regular assessments, all FDA-approved medications, detoxification, counseling, recovery support services, and other best practices to ensure patients have the individualized care that they need. You know, this will also lift the IMD exclusion, which is an outdated policy that limits Medicaid from providing coverage in terms of facilities with more than 16 beds. You know, this bill will remove these restrictions, allowing Medicaid to cover up to 30 days of treatment for all substance use disorders. Uh, lastly, uh, this will expand the use of telehealth services. You know, telehealth is extremely important, and it's a great solution for diagnosing and treating substance use disorders, particularly in rural areas where we know there's a vast treatment, uh, vast treatment deserts and workforce shortages. Uh, this will cause uh, many patients, you know, that will cause many patients to travel great distances to see providers. You know, this will make it easier for them to get the care that they need by increasing uh, the, the use of telemedicine. So how are these going to work? the recovery centers, that is. So are they physical locations that are going to be established? Yes. Yeah, they will. There will be uh, some grant programs, some competitive grant programs that will be um, issued, and uh, folks can apply for those to create these centers uh, at a, a national level. So it's a brand new program, and so we, we, at this point, probably don't know where those will be specifically. Uh, but right now, the uh, process has begun for people to apply or organizations to apply for these. Is that right? Yeah, my, my guess would be that over the coming six months or so, the agency responsible for putting out those grant notices will begin to do that outreach as they put together the parameters of it. So we know that when Congress passes a law, the executive branch then goes into work and overdrives into trying to implement those policies that come out. So their job is to, the executive job or branch's job is to interpret the legislation and to actually put it into practice. So they'll start getting that stuff out the door 
uh, in the coming months. Part of this section of the bill also involves family-focused residential treatment. What are those two, that hyphenated uh, phrase, what does that mean, family-focused? What's going to be different about this? Well, we know this could be a family disease, and the family is, can be impacted as well. So this makes sure this ensures that there are services for the patient as well as the family, um, you know, that being treatment, you know, helping uh, with counseling services to ensure that there's a holistic approach uh, while addressing the whole family at the same time. It's also really important. We know that this doesn't occur in a vacuum. And for a solution to really arise, that oftentimes is going to take the entire family's involvement in it to deal with and address some of the underlying causes of what may um, bring about a problem with a substance use disorder. Sure. And that leads us really to the next section that we wanted to talk about. And that is the section that deals with helping patients and families in crisis. That portion of the bill, I, I think, uh, again, backing up a little bit to the, to the point of, you know, before you get them into help, when they're in crisis, um, this addresses that. So, uh, guys, you want to kind of introduce us to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a really great provision as well that's included in the bill. You know, this will is very important for advocates and families. You know, it requires the government to annually remind healthcare providers uh, what information they're allowed to share, you know, during emergency situations, you know, such as an overdose. You know, this will allow, you know, healthcare, uh, healthcare provider, other healthcare providers, family members, and caregivers to be notified right away so they can connect that, uh, their loved one with services that they need. And I think traditionally what happens is everyone is so afraid of HIPAA that family members just don't get notified of this, do they? Yeah, oftentimes that's been the, the real concern is they're, it, it, they're very, they're well-meaning and there's well-intentioned behind it. They're concerned that they're not betraying anybody's confidence or confidentiality uh, in coming to a hospital. Um, the, the reverse of that is that making sure that there is proper clarification about what exactly can be shared uh, within the law to making sure that um, everything is done on the up and up, so to speak, um, but to ensure that information that is needed by family members or caregivers is given directly to those people. You know, one of the big tragedies of the opioid epidemic is the uh, collateral damage that uh, has happened with the babies across America. And this bill really provides help for opioid-dependent moms and their babies on an, really an unprecedented uh, scale. So speak to that. Sure. Thank you, Greg. This is uh, immensely important and a real focus of our efforts here at the Addiction Policy Forum. There was a recent study done earlier in the year uh, that showed that every 15 minutes, a baby is born with opioids in their system. So it, to your point, that is an unspeakable tragedy uh, that has a, a lot of costs associated with it on the family level, um, to the, the providers of the health insurance, whether it be Medicaid or private insurance. There are, just, there are massive societal costs that are included in the cycle of addiction being uh, unbroken. So the, this legislation addresses that. Uh, it expands Medicaid coverage for infants with neonatal abstinence syndrome, NAS, who are receiving care in residential pediatric recovery centers. It allows for pregnant and postpartum women who are receiving care for SUD in a treatment facility to receive other Medicaid-covered care, such as those prenatal services. And this is another reason why lifting that IMD exclusion is so crucially important. The Medicaid Institutions for Mental Disease, or IMD exclusions, prohibits the use of federal Medicaid financing for care provided to most patients in mental health and substance use disorder, residential treatment facilities larger than 16 beds. Removal of this clause really opens up treatment for many more people. There's also funding in there for a program that we've highlighted through our Spotlight series. It's called the Kentucky START program. It's uh, 
The START is an acronym, stands for Sobriety Treatment and Recovery Teams. And this is that holistic family response that we talked about a little bit earlier. It's an amazing program that pairs a social worker and a family mentor. That family mentor is somebody who is in recovery themselves with a small number of families providing peer support, intensive treatment, and child welfare services. So when we think about this on a, like a macro level, so many of our uh, social workers and other individuals that are engaged in this field, they have caseloads that are extraordinary. They're in the 30 to 40 cases per. The, the brilliance of the START program is these folks only have three or four families to deal with at a time. So it's real intensive. And they get in, they provide the services that are needed, whether it be uh, mental illness um, or uh, substance use disorder. They do an immediate assessment. They determine what that family, what the parents need, what the children need, and they rush those resources to them um, before there's ever a, or before there is the consideration of whether or not to remove the, the, the children from um, the, uh, the situation, the living situation. And I think that that's such an important aspect of that program is they bring the resources to bear prior to it getting that severe where the child has to be removed from the family because statistics show that very often once the child is removed, they're not reunited with the family. So that's a huge program. Exactly. And the, the trauma associated with a move like that is immense. Um, for that child and putting somebody in foster care and removing them from that familial situation uh, can be devastating for an individual. Now, I, I would say that with the caveat that um, this program would never put a child in danger. They would never keep them in a situation that's, that's dangerous for them, but rather what it'll do is it'll, it'll make it not the default position to remove a child from care, but rather trying to arrest the problem early on in the crisis to make sure that that cycle is broken immediately by rushing care and services to the family that's it, it involved in this circumstance. In an earlier episode of our podcast series, we spoke with Leanne Corinne, the Director of Children's Initiatives in Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine's office, who broke down the three teams that comprise the START Program initiative. So uh, there are three separate um, entities that are involved in a START team. The first and foremost is child welfare. Uh, so there is a dedicated caseworker who handles a much smaller caseload um, of about eight to ten cases who can really provide intensive case management and wraparound services uh, for children who enter the child welfare system because of their parents' addiction. So because of the parents' addiction, uh, they also, the parent is going to need some kind of uh, drug treatment. So the behavioral health providers are also a very important part of the start team. Uh, and one way that the behavioral health partners um, are, are working on this team is through something called a peer support and recovery specialist. And then the third and final party who's part of these start teams is the juvenile court or the family drug court. Um, and, and they would be the entity that helps refer families to the start program uh, or, you know, the, the uh, a worker from the from the juvenile court, um, you know, may be interested in participating in the team as well. Another thing about this program that I I find really encouraging is the fact that it's tried and true. It's been out there. They've done this successfully in Kentucky as well as uh, Southern Ohio, and uh, they yes. had great success. And uh, it's evidence based, and so now we're putting the resources into this to expand it on a very broad and national scale. And and so I find that really exciting. It's perfect. It's exactly what the country needs to be doing writ large. So as opposed to like more of a, a top-down approach, this is something that has bubbled up from within the communities. To your point, it's tried and true. 
It's evidence-based. They've done a lot of studies uh, that show empirically that it works. For every uh, $1 that is spent on the START program, you save $2.20 on the back end for uh, adoption proceedings or for um, the proceedings within the state to remove a child from the custody and care and putting them into foster care. So it saves dollars. It keeps the families intact. It solves the underlying problems. It's, the, it's a perfect idea where you have the, the local and state uh, coming up with a solution that works for their areas and now bringing it to the national scale to be able to replicate it where appropriate. Speaking of kids, our unborn babies and, and the tragedy of neonatal syndrome uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome mm-hmm. is is just um, oh, it's when you read about that and learn a little bit about that. That's just they're again the the victims of uh, this epidemic, and and that's another thing that I love about this bill is the fact that it's expanding Medicaid coverage so that infants with neonatal abstinence syndrome uh, they have that opportunity to receive that care and and that they need. I think the great thing about it is, again, it's modeled on successful programs like Lily's Place, you know, the first that did that in the country. Right. Yeah, massively important. Uh, it's giving voice, you know, it's, it's, certainly don't want to sound trite or glib, but it, it certainly is giving voice to the voiceless. This is giving the help to that person that can't fend for themselves in the need of that kind of assistance, the exact kind that they need. Another aspect under this uh, portion of the bill is the health insurance for former foster youth. Can you speak to that? That's interesting. Yeah, so, you know, this is really important for, for, uh, for adolescents who are going through the foster care system. It will allow them to, you know, keep their, their Medicaid coverage across state lines. So, you know, if they are moving or they're going across state borders, they'll be able to keep that, that insurance, uh, I mean, that, that health care insurance uh, covered, um, you know, until they, are, um, until they reach that age. The fourth section has to do with recovery supports. So what do people need to know about this particular uh, part of the bill? Because as we all know, the hard work really begins after somebody gets out of rehab. Well, that's such a great point, Greg. Uh, as a person in long-term recovery myself, I, I was really excited that Congress took this issue head on. It's something that we've talked a lot about here at Addiction Policy Forum and with other nonprofits and uh, stakeholders um, and individuals who have witnessed this in their own lives. Uh, to your point, you are not cured, quote unquote, when you walk through the gates of a treatment center after 30 days. This is a lifelong process that takes a great deal of work and effort to maintain and sustain sobriety. And HR6 provides a lot of great services for those in recovery and those who are transferring out of uh, treatment, whether it be an intensive outpatient program or a partial hospitalization or an inpatient program, or even if a person is just doing like a, a 90 and 90, a 90, a 90 days of uh, consistent meetings at an NA or AA facility. Um, it, it improves those kind of wraparound services that individuals may need who are transitioning from these programs to independent living to get back into the workforce. Uh, we know this is important because that period of time for an individual uh, without the right support system in place, it can be very dangerous and they can slip uh, right back into where they were without those proper support services around them. Uh, this bill develops and disseminates best practices for operating recovery housing to ensure individuals are living in a safe and supportive environment as well. It it enhances grant programs for RCOs, recovery community organizations, to expand those peer recovery support services nationwide. It also establishes a national peer-run training and technical assistance center to provide TA and support to to RCOs and peer support networks to expand those recovery support services to every corner of the country. Massively important. This is one of those things where, you know, we've put an awful lot of money into treatment, which is fantastic, and it's much needed. And making sure that we have the resources available for those who are leaving treatment 
is equally important to make sure that they're able to maintain that over time and not have to go back into a treatment setting. I mean, we know that this, this disease of addiction is not unlike cancer. It's, it has the same type of relapsing and remitting circumstances where a person may relapse. These kinds of things happen. It's to be expected in your course of recovery that a relapse may occur. And to make sure that we have the treatment there for a person, and then also to make sure that we can address those underlying causes when they get into recovery to help uh, ameliorate and eliminate the circumstances that brought them to uh, use the substance in the first place. These kinds of recovery support systems are vital to that individual. One of the struggles that people have when they come out of rehab is their sober living arrangements. Oftentimes, um, these end up uh, in, they end up in bad situations there. And it's really good to see that the resources are being put towards developing and disseminating uh, best practices for operating those. How far-reaching do you see that going? Well, I think this really it addresses a needed concern. I think it's something that we've heard a great deal about over the last few years as uh, sober living places have really popped up in, in a lot of locations, making sure uh, that, the, that the person is entering into a, a safe, healthy, happy environment that they can work on the, their underlying issues. I, I think that this could be extraordinarily far-reaching. I think a lot of it uh, is being done at the state level right now. There are, there are a lot of fantastic organizations that are developing criteria for this. And if the, the federal government can give it a nudge here, then, it, you know, it, that can be a very important uh, component to it as well, a complement to what's been going on. And it can have far-reaching Im- impact as, as well. Sure. And speaking of far-reaching impact, in the work that we've done over the course of the last two and a half years, I've been exposed to uh, an unbelievable resource to someone who is struggling uh, to, to recover, and that is the recovery coaches. I've been uh, just introduced and, and just met over the years some just incredible people I, I, that have made such a difference in the lives of others by helping them along and helping them up and having that experience, life's experience, having gone through that themselves. And so part of this, Bill, it's, uh, I think, really important to expand that and, and support that nationwide. Oh, without question. It, to, to be able to replicate the work that peer recovery support coaches do it could be a, a, a monumental assist in getting that person who's newly out of treatment uh, into recovery and long-term sustained recovery. They can share their experiences of strength and hope, the things that they've gone through. It provides much-needed perspective that while uh, you may be in a very difficult spot right now, that it is not a cliche to say one day at a time. It is not a cliche to say that your life will be immeasurably better as a result of it. I've been in recovery for eight years, and if you would have told me eight years ago that this is where I would be today, in Washington, D.C., where my boss just went to the, uh, the signing with the President of the United States of H.R. 6, a piece of legislation that we worked intently on, I would have said that you were crazy. But the fact that I had good people around me to help bring me through the process of recovery and get me into a, the position that I am today, it's, it's just an, it's a blessing that I never would have imagined possible. And I think peer recovery support coaches can offer those lessons to individuals who are newly recovered uh, or newly out of treatment and thinking that this is still just a bridge too far or a mountain too high to climb. And it's not. Hope exists. And it's just amazing to see these folks in action. I mean, it's the commitment that I've seen. It's no matter what time, of the day or night, it doesn't matter. They're, they're there to support their people that are helping. The fifth and final section that we wanted to talk about today was ending illegal patient brokering. We've been exposed to that in some of our shows, in fact. We've talked about that. We interviewed Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Ehrenberg, and he shared with us his work in uh, combating the Florida shuffle is actually they've coined a phrase for it down there. It's called the Florida shuffle. And um, 
So we've talked about that a little bit, and I think that he's really helped to um, shine a spotlight on on this practice and and deceptive pra- practices that people can fall prey to. So again, I'm I'm really pleased to see that this piece of legislation is and this bill is uh, going to address that as well. What do we need to know about that? Yeah, absolutely, Greg. You know, we're we're pleased as well that this is uh, included in this legislation as well. You know, this will make it illegal at the federal level to pay or receive kickbacks in return for referring a patient to a recovery house or a treatment center, you know, putting an end to these corrupt practices. When would somebody know if uh, they're in a situation or being lured into a situation to steer clear of and maybe they could fall, uh, you know, victim to patient brokering? Well, I think part of the, the legislation, what this is addressing is sometimes you have treatment centers or rehab facilities that are reaching out to a third party for referrals. So that third party has the patient's information in hand. And when that third party makes a referral to a treatment center, sometimes that they or they will get a kickback for that referral. So at the end of the day, the bottom line for those two entities would be profit, not the person's uh, needs. So that's what this legislation addresses. It's the, the idea that a, a person cannot sell another person's uh, information like that and not face criminal or civil liability. So that's where the patient brokering comes in and ending that practice. Patient brokering is when a drug rehab facility pays a third party for referring a patient to their establishment, but the treatment facility is solely focused on their finances. This has become a serious issue in the addiction treatment industry, especially in the state of Florida. And that covers our five sections that we wanted to cover. Are there any other points that you wanted to make for uh, for this section before we uh, uh, before we close it out? Sure. I think I would just speak to the 30,000-foot level here. I, I know that uh, Washington's approval ratings are um, or have been low for some time, but I think that what we see uh, with the bipartisan, bicameral work of HR six, uh, the Support for Families and Communities Act, I think it shows perfectly what Washington do, Washington can do when they roll up their sleeves and work together. This is the perfect example of that. In the Senate, uh, more than seventy senators had uh, pieces of legislation that were included in uh, their version of HR six. On the House side, I know that there were more than 50 pieces of legislation that were considered on the floor and wrapped up into H.R. 6, and the president signed the piece of legislation into law on the 24th. This is a result of uh, families and communities and stakeholders from the very local, local communities up to the state making their voices heard here in Washington, D.C., and it's an example of what can be done when we all work together and roll up our sleeves and get to work. So we're incredibly thankful for the hard work that Congress has undertaken to treat addiction as the medical condition that it is and for enhancing these meaningful reforms aimed at helping the people that we represent, the families and patients struggling with this disease. And again, in a, in a larger sense, this legislation helps curb the, over, or the devastating opioid crisis while ensuring that the people that are impacted by addiction have the care and support that they need. And this is what can be achieved. To close today's podcast, I invited U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown to comment on this historic piece of bipartisan legislation. Can you tell us a little bit about how you were all able to step back and passed this by an overwhelming margin. I believe it was 98 to 1. Well, Senator Portman and I are two of the main players in this. There were certainly others, Senator Sheehan, Senator Markey, Senator uh, uh, Capito, and Manchin. I mean, there were a lot of people in the states that are afflicted the, the, the most, Ohio, West Virginia, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, several states have really borne the brunt of this more than the rest of the country, although everyone has it. And but I don't, I, I, when I want to get something done in, in the Senate, I go to a, I'm a Democrat, I go to a Republican and realize that's the way you move things forward. And we are, we are successful at doing more things than the public sees because you, 
you know, most people didn't know about this opioid bill. You talk about it um, because you, you know, you have, you care so much for your podcast and doing this, but it doesn't get the big attention on Fox or on MSNBC or anywhere because they'd rather talk about us fighting, I guess. But this is an example of the farm bill that we do every five years. We passed with 86 votes. So we're, we're seeing some of that, not enough, but this is too important to ignore. And I'm hopeful that the administration, I mean, the, the Trump administration has not been particularly aggressive on this. I'm hopeful that they will do, and I like to make the comparison, um, 50 years ago when tobacco, America first woke up to the fact that tobacco kills huge numbers of people and shortens lives, and government working with local communities uh, took on the tobacco companies, and now we have seen tobacco addiction rates drop by something like 60% over the last 50 years. And, um, it's been an ongoing battle because the tobacco companies don't exactly play fair. Um, but that's we, we engage in a real public health mission, and that's what we need to do with opioids, and that's what I'm hoping the administration will step up and do more as Congress is doing more. Senator Portman and I have been working on this for years, the other senator from our state, and uh, he's a Republican, I'm a Democrat, and uh, part of it is to scale up treatment programs, part of it is to lift the so-called IMD exclusion. Years ago, Congress set a limit on the number of beds in a treatment facility, partly to stop any kind of abuse, but that's outmoded and we we need to lift that 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 cap which we did uh, partly we took something called Bridget's path which is a um, one of country it's in Dayton and its focus is on babies born to addictive mothers and it's both less expensive and it's more effective than keeping a child in a neonatal keeping a baby in a neonatal intensive care unit in October 2014, Lily's Place opened its doors in Huntington, West Virginia, as the first neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS, center in the United States. To learn more about this program, tune in to Episode 151, where we talk to Rebecca Crowder, the Executive Director of Lily's Place. Well, we're taking the time to break down H.R. 6. We're doing two podcasts on this, and Senator Brown, you will be the last word and on our first podcast on H.R. 6. So what would you like to be? to put in as our last word? Well, I'd, I'd like to say that I um, just thank you for the interest of everybody's list, everybody listening and, and Greg McNeil and what you're doing, but I'd like people to let you know or let my office know um, what we should be doing in addition to this. And one example we're trying to do, it's not law yet, is while we do uh, training, we, there's a good bit of federal money going, obviously, for Medicaid, uh, for addiction treatment. There's also a good bit of federal money on job training. And I would like to integrate some of those locally so when people get tra- treatment, when they come out and have successfully completed treatment, that they have gone through job training so they could find a job. Because if you're, if you're clean after treatment and you can't find a job, sometimes the temptations are too great. And addiction is, you're much more likely to fall back into it without a job. So that's, our, that's one of our next steps. We're looking for ideas on other steps. And please call. You can go to sharebrown. You can go to brown.senate.gov. And let my office know you can call Senator Portman or me if you're in Ohio, and you can go to your senators or congressmen and women wherever you live. That concludes our uh, unpacking, I'll call it, of H.R. 6, a comprehensive and historic opioid bill that uh, was signed into law by President Trump. And I think this bill is going to have a far-reaching impact on the opioid epidemic. My guest today, who helped unpack H.R. 6, the historic opioid legislation that was signed into law October 24th of this year by President Trump, have been Jay Rue, the Chief of Staff and Vice President of Federal and National Initiatives for the Addiction Policy Forum, and Braden Kelly, the Director of Federal Affairs for the Addiction Policy Forum, both residing in Washington, D.C. 
And we close this episode with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown's comments on H.R. 6. Please join us next time for part two in this series, where we analyze the healthcare integration, treatment workforce expansion, medication-assisted treatment, and law enforcement portions of H.R. 6. My name is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.